0: Well, today marks a special day for me and my family, and I trust our people here at the church as well. Yesterday was uh, officially my very, very last day of seminary. So I am extremely thankful for that. Uh, Obviously, I'm not done with my theological and pastoral studies, but at least at TMS, uh, for right now, I am right, babe. Um, so we've had those conversations, but just to give you a quick little summary, you know, after Jess and I graduated, what was uh, the master's college back then in two thousand two, I had a longing to go into pastoral ministry, and yet I had a terror to go into pastoral ministry because of the the weightiness of the responsibility of rightly handling God's word and and proclaiming it, and so. I just continued teaching at a Christian school, teaching Bible, studying the Bible, but just giving myself to the church and did that for several years. And then in 2004, I enrolled in seminary, and then they talked me out of being in seminary. They said, if you can go do anything else, go do it. And I heard that over and over again. If you can do anything else, go do it. And I felt like, well, I, I think I can do something else. I don't think this is the only thing that I have to do. And so I, I did. I left and just, again, continued to teach at a Christian school and serve the church, Uh, and then I got called to a pastoral ministry job in 2010, and then I realized, hey, I can really use some more Bible education, but I was terrified still of seminary, and so I went and got another degree in biblical studies at master's, um, and I thought I was all done with school, but when I was at Grace Church of the Valley, Pastor Scott Ardo um, brought the Master's Seminary, Central Valley, to our church, Grace Church of the Valley, and so I continued on. And all this to say is I feel like I've been in school since first grade, basically. I've been at it for a very, very long time. But what I did want to do is I wanted to publicly thank and acknowledge Grace Church of the Valley, which really was my sending church that brought me out here, and we consider them a sister church, You know, three years ago when we arrived here in 2019, Grace Church of the Valley didn't want to burden the church, didn't want to burden us, and so they had scholarshiped me through seminary. And so I am extremely grateful for their generosity and their love and support of not just me and my family, but of this church. They continue to be walking alongside us, even as we're making changes around campus and searching for another pastor And so I am so thankful for Pastor Scott, the elders, and that entire body over at Grace Church of the Valley. But I also want to say thank you to you, because in a lot of ways you sent encouraging notes and helped me get through seminary. So I'm just so thankful. And I think, you know, you get another Bible degree and someone might say, well, Pastor, do you feel like you have arrived now? And my answer to that is, yeah, I have arrived. I've arrived at the conclusion that you barely scratch the surface when it comes to studying God's Word. You can have a thousand lifetimes of studying God's Word and you will never be able to plumb the depth and the profundity of God's character and His truth. And So I'm thrilled that seminary is done. I could devote more time to studying and teaching and shepherding here. And one of the things I was so excited to do was to finally get into a gospel. We've been through Philippians. We've been through James. We've been through a lot of Old Testament text. But now it's time to get into a gospel. And so for the next who knows how long, we are just going to be spending time with Jesus in the gospel of Luke. So why don't you grab your Bibles and open up to Luke. There is nothing more valuable than us spending time marveling at the life of Christ. And I don't know, again, how long we'll be here, but starting next week, we'll jump into the actual text of Luke. But today, we're just going to try to get a bird's eye view. This is what we call an introduction to the gospel of Luke. And so we'll be jumping around. you got to stretch out your fingers because we'll be flipping from passage to passage. But what we're trying to do this morning is we're trying to discern a couple of things, really, the the structure of Luke, the historical setting of Luke, the language of Luke, the themes in Luke. And you say, why do we need to do all that? Well, because understanding the, the, the book's framework is going to help us to understand the book's purpose. You see, there's a reason why God sovereignly and providentially Gave us four Gospels and not just one Gospel. And there's a reason why this particular book is in the canon of Scripture. And when we understand the purpose of why this particular book, Luke, is written, it's going to help us to kind of put everything into place. So would you pray with me as we open up this wonderful Gospel? Let's pray. Father, we are dependent on your Spirit for everything. Lord, a seminary education um means very little if the spirit is not moving and working and humbling and causing us to be dependent on you. And so Father, would you please unite our heart to fear your name and open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your precious word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Here's our main idea as we just think about Luke as a whole and it's up on the screen if you're taking notes. Luke was written to describe and demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of Man who came to save his people. And when I say his people, I'm not just talking about Jews. I'm talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he came to save his people from their sins in accordance with the plan of God. Again, Luke was written to describe and demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of Man who came to save his people from their sins in accordance with the plan of God of God. And our outline for today as we look at this introductory material is is real simple. We want to look at the person behind this gospel, the person behind Luke. Then we'll look at the purpose of Luke, then the peculiarities of Luke, and then the way Luke presents Christ in his gospel. And then we'll close with just some practical applications for why we even do all this Bible study work. So let's begin with Point number one, the person behind Luke. Whenever you come to a book, you want to know about the authorship. Who who wrote the book? Well, the book is called Luke. And so you say, Dom, that's easy. It says the gospel according to Luke. Why do we have to do any research on that one? Well, how do you know that? How do you know that Luke wrote Luke? I think it's important that we try to figure this out. And one of the ways to figure that out is the internal evidence that we see that's in the text. But there's also something called external evidence. The, the people who lived during that time, who are closest to the events, what do they say about this text? Now, obviously, we love when we come to a book, you open up to Romans, Paul, an apostle, right? Peter, an apostle, James, a bondservant of Christ. That's really nice and easy. Well, there is none of that here as we open up the Gospel of Luke. Luke's name is actually never mentioned in the Gospel. It's never mentioned in the prologue. But there's a fairly easy way, I think, to deduce that Luke is the author of this gospel. In order to do that, we need to go to the book of Acts. You say, well, why the book of Acts? Well, we need to go to Acts and work our way backwards because Acts is actually part two of Luke. Beginning at the book of Acts, we learn that Acts is volume two. So turn real quickly to Acts chapter one, and let me just show this to you. In Acts 1 and verse 1, we read this here. He says, The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. A great introduction to Acts. But what he says here in Acts is there was a first account. There was a first scroll that I wrote. So again, this is part two, or part one of part two. And if we can figure out who wrote Acts, we'll figure out who wrote Luke. Now, the author of Acts does something very unique. Beginning in chapter 16, he begins to include himself in the stories that he's writing about. So turn there to Acts chapter 16 and look there at verse 10. Very interesting that the pronouns change. They go from they to now we. So in Acts 16 and verse 10, we read this. And when he had, that's Paul, had seen the vision, immediately, here it is, we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to proclaim the gospel to them. And so Paul and his missionary associates, they go into the land of Macedonia, and specifically to Philippi. And in verse 12, we read this of chapter 16. And we were staying in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate of the riverside where we were supposed, supposing that we would be at a place of prayer and sitting down, we, again, began speaking to the women who had assembled. And you know the rest of this story because we studied this when we were in the book of Philippians, that they go down to the riverside, and there's Lydia. She's a seller of purple fa- fabrics. She hears the gospel, gets saved, is baptized, and then there's a demonic uh, little young girl who's following around, disrupting their ministry. Paul casts her out. She, potentially, we think, gets saved, Hears the gospel, believes the gospel, gets baptized. The same thing happens to the Philippian jailer, his whole household. Hears the gospel, believes the gospel, gets baptized, and boom. The power of the Word of God starts a church there, the first church actually in Europe. And you can read more about those wee passages in the book of Acts. They're in chapter 20 and chapter 21. But let me take you to the last one as you turn to Acts chapter 27, we see there in Acts 27, more wheeze as Paul describes his trip to Rome. This is his last trip to Rome. And we learn from Paul that Luke was one of the few co-workers with him during those last days. Now, it's interesting that when you read 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is what we think the last letter That Paul wrote and you have to remember that Paul is preparing to die and so he writes to his young disciple Timothy and you can almost hear him pleading Timothy please do your very best to come to me before winter and you read that little detail and say why does he include that well because if Timothy doesn't get on a boat and travel all the way to where Paul is he might not see him again and so he says come please and bring the parchments, and bring my coats. And interestingly, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he writes this, only Luke is with me. Philemon, verse 24, tells us that Luke, he wasn't a fellow prisoner, but he was a fellow co-worker. And Luke is with the apostle Paul all the way up leading to his death. Now, that's a good start. I think you can start connecting the dots. We know that Luke is with Paul at the end of his life, but there's still not an airtight case for Luke being the author. And so what do we have to do? A process of elimination. Let me just show you how we do this. Luke is a traveling companion, but he has a lot of traveling companions. And so we got to do our Sherlock Holmes and put on our hat and figure out, okay, well, how do we know for sure that Luke is the guy? Because there's a list of traveling companions. There's John, Mark, there's Aristarchus, there's Demas, there's Timothy, there's Titus, there's Silas, there's Epaphras, there's Barnabas. All of these brothers accompany Luke, or excuse me, Paul on his missionary journeys. But again, there's a way to narrow this down, and here's how we do it. If Paul is traveling with a bunch of people, and the author's giving these we passages, we can rule out when he starts to list other people unless he's just strange and likes to refer to himself in the third person. When we do that analysis, what we find out is there's only four people left. Epaphras, Titus, Demas, and Luke. And really, we can get rid of Demas. You know why? Because the text tells us that Demas actually loved the world and walked away from Paul and walked away from Christ and walked away from the gospel. So there's only three guys now that we can choose from how do we figure out that it's Luke? Well, you look at the writing and the style. What we find out is that the writing of Luke is significant. Luke seems to be, or the writer anyway, seems to be educated, very analytical, very precise. In fact, one of the examples when you compare it to the other gospels is that he gives a lot more detail and attention when it comes to the miracles of Jesus which accords with what we know about Luke. You see, Luke presents more exact descriptions of sickness and disease, more so than Matthew and Mark. Oftentimes, Luke will provide additional medical details about an illness that others leave out. So, for instance, when talking about Peter's mother-in-law, they say she was sick. But Luke will say, no, she had a high fever. He gives more description when it comes to the leprosy that people had. Luke is the only gospel writer that mentions how a woman spent all of her money, unsuccessfully, by the way, on worthless doctors that couldn't heal the 12 years of her hemorrhaging. All of this, and you consider the fact that his terminology is rich with medical language, and it fits well Paul's description, one of the three in Colossians chapter 4, that Luke is a beloved physician. He's a traveling companion. He's a beloved physician. But it's not just the gifted medical perspective he has. He's a gifted historian. It's clear that this gospel, more so than Matthew and Mark, they he takes great pains to verify historical accuracy. When he recounts stories, he's giving precise dates and locations and people. So look there at chapter 1 in Luke. We read this in the prologue. Luke says inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word he says it seems fitting for me as well having investigated very carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order most excellent theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. And so there's historic precision. We see this over and over again. Luke dates Jesus' birth, but he doesn't do that without mentioning the reigning Roman emperor. And we see that in Luke chapter 2. He even dates the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry in Luke chapter 3. Look, look at chapter 3 real quick, and let me show you this. He's already talked about the first sentence by Quirinius that can be verified. But he says here in Luke 3, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetriarch of the region of Iteria, and Triconus, and Licinius was tetriarch of Abilene. And listen, we get the Bible, we throw it away. If we go back in the annals of history and we say, well, those people don't even exist. There's no record of that. But this is verifiable history that Luke provides for us so Luke, he's a traveling companion. He's a physician. He's a historian. But he's also very skilled in Greco-Roman history, culture, and writing. You say, Dom, how do you know that? How do we know this? Well, Luke is written in the most refined Greek, the most refined Greek in all of the New Testament. And one of the reasons is because Luke is a Gentile. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, in Colossians... Paul is closing out his letter, and he describes those of the circumcision. He's talking about Jews who are along with him. And he leaves Luke's name out of that, but talks about Luke later. So it's clear, based on that, that Luke is actually a Gentile, not a Jew. And that makes perfect sense when we consider that he's translating Aramaic terms. He's explaining Jewish customs and geography Because he's writing from a Gentile perspective to a Gentile audience. And everything that he writes is so rich in literary genius and beauty. That's a lot of internal evidence. Can we say, well, we know for certain? I think so. But in addition to that, there's the external evidence. And all of the early church fathers, from Irenaeus to Clement of Alexandria to Justin Martyr, all of them say that Luke wrote the third gospel. So listen, he is a non-Jew. He's got a medical bent. He's educated. He writes like a historian. He's got a lot of interaction with the Gentile world. Okay, so why all the work to figure out if Luke wrote it when it just says Luke? Well, because knowing who wrote the book helps us to understand why he wrote the book. And that is significant. And so we look at the purpose now of Luke. That's the person, now the purpose. If you open up a commentary and you start to read, why did Luke write this gospel? You will have all kinds of opinions and thoughts. In fact, Daryl Bach, who's a commentator, he gives over 10 purposes that people have asserted by why Luke wrote this gospel. Here's just a few. He said, this is an explanation of why Jesus didn't return. that That's why Luke was written. He says there's others that believe this is a defense for Christianity or a defense for Paul or it's an anti-Gnostic bent. Some say it's just evangelistic or it's confirmation of the word and the message of salvation. Others suggest that it is a theodicy of God's faithfulness to Israel. Some believe that it's a sociological legitimizing of full entrance of Gentiles into this whole grand salvation narrative. Others believe that it is an anti-Semitic document and a total rejection of the Jews. And you can go chasing all this stuff down, but you don't have to do all that. Why? Because just look at verse one in Luke. As we enter to the prologue, Luke sets the stage. And by the time you get to verse four, you take out all the guessing work because it says right there, verse four, why did he write this? So that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. And there it is right there. As the narrative moves throughout Luke and all the way throughout Acts, it's clear that Luke is helping Theophilus and his readers gain an understanding about three things. And here those three things are the content of the gospel. And so what Luke does throughout his gospel and even in Acts is he defines what the gospel is. But secondly, he provides the credibility of the gospel. And so after he defines it, he defends it, that this is trustworthy, that this is reliable. And thirdly, after we have the contents and the credibility that it can be trusted and relied upon, it is the communication of the gospel. So he is defining, defending, but ultimately declaring this great and glorious gospel. Now, let me just show you the structure as we think about the content of the gospel. What what is in this particular gospel? And for that, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, you'll be tested on this next week. This is really the theme verse. Others have suggested other verses, and I'm not going to argue too much, but this is a fantastic verse that really sets the stage for the entire gospel. Luke 19.10, it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Do you realize how significant that sentence is? Just one sentence. But what it does, it provides us with the structure and the divisions of this gospel. So the way that we look at it is the first section, we take the Son of Man has come. In verse 1 all the way to 4.13. And in this opening section, Luke gives us the details of how Jesus entered into the human race and includes the genealogy going all the way back, not just to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. And that's significant and differing from Matthew's genealogy And you say, why? Because in Adam, all what? Died. But in Christ, all what? Live. And you know, what's interesting is someone said that. The apostle Paul did. And who's hanging out with Paul all the time? Luke is. And so much of Paul's theology is shaping Luke and even this particular gospel The second section, the Son of Man has come. That's the first. The second section, what did he come to do? It says to seek. And we see that in 4.14 all the way through 19.27. The Lord's earthly ministry consisted largely of seeking people out, which is what makes Luke so thrilling to read. Because as you read Luke, you see Jesus enter into humanity to reach humanity. And he's interacting with people. He's sitting with people. There's more references to him sitting down at a a dining room table than any other gospel. He meets people in their hurt and in their shame and in their pain and in their guilt. And he gives them hope. And he constantly points to himself as being the hope of the world. The Lord's pursuit of humanity climaxes now As he sets his face to Jerusalem, turn over to Luke chapter 9. And again, we see this at the end of this particular section. In verse 51, we read this. Now it happened that when the days for him to be taken up were soon to be fulfilled, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's shorthand for he's a man on a mission, And he's come to this earth for one reason to die. He's come to die. You see, the answer to man's sin problem wouldn't be dealt with by just merely teaching or merely modeling. No, the perfect man, Jesus, had to offer himself up as a perfect sacrifice in order to truly seek and save the lost. And so, chapters 9 through 10 record the record the journey to Jerusalem, and recounts a number of interactions as he's on his way to his final days. And then the third and final section, we read, and to save that which was lost. And that's 1928 all the way through the end. Now turn over to Luke chapter 19, and we'll look at verse 28. Again, this is just helpful for getting our our, our navigation and our bearings But in 1928, it says, After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And that right there closes the seeking section and begins the saving ministry. It introduces the section of the book in which he enters the city. He goes to the temple. He ascends to the Mount of Olives. He's taken to Pilate before the judgment hall then he goes to the cross, then he goes to the tomb, then he's resurrected, and then he ascends right back to the right hand of God. And that's a brief outline of Luke. That that is the content of Luke, and that's why I'm so excited just to spend our time considering those things. But Luke also does a masterful job, not just giving us the contents and laying it out in a great structure but he provides us with the credibility of the gospel. So Luke defends the credibility of the gospel, not just by providing accurate eyewitness accounts, but by helping the reader, that's you and me, to understand that all of the things that Jesus is doing, his teaching, his healing, his modeling, his serving, and ultimately his self-sacrifice on the cross, all of this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus' entry into the world, listen to this, it is the pinnacle of human history. This is what we were looking for for ages. God has made promises. When is he going to fulfill them? When is the Messiah going to come? And boom, here he comes. Now as we prepare... To celebrate Christmas, I want us to understand that everything that came before the law and the prophets, every promise that was made, every covenant that was established, Jesus came and fulfilled that. Do you understand that? The entire Bible is one gigantic story, and Jesus is the centerpiece. Man was created. Man sinned and fell into condemnation. And all throughout the Old Testament, what do we find? Man can do nothing to save himself. And so the promise back in Genesis 3, that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent, and then God's promise to Noah and the Noahic Covenant, and then to Moses and the Mosaic Covenant, and then to David and to Abraham, and then the new covenant, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those covenants. So when Jesus, listen to this, when he sets his feet on the very earth that he created, he is the covenantal climax of human history. But listen, the content, the credibility of the gospel, it's not going to have much impact if it's not communicated. And that's what Luke's aim is in telling this story. Because he's got a man, most excellent Theophilus, that might be saved, might not. He might be on the fence. But Luke communicates this, not just to him, but to everyone, even us today, so that we would be convinced and do something with the truth that we have about Jesus. And so there's the communication of the gospel It's defined, it's defended, and it's declared. Luke, more than all other gospel writers, highlights the universal scope, the universal scope of salvation. And we see this early on. Look there at chapter 2 in Luke. Because Luke is careful to document the Old Testament basis for all of this salvation, both to Jews and Gentiles. And so in chapter 2, what do we see? The angels proclaiming goodwill to all men there in 214. And then Simeon prophesies over little infant Jesus in 232. And this is what he says. He says, This is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And you say, Who's the light and salvation for? Well, look at chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, And all flesh will see the salvation of Of God, which makes perfect sense because Luke is rolling with the guy who is an apostle to the Gentiles. But listen, this universal scope of salvation is probably best proclaimed by Jesus himself. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. You'll remember this. Jesus returns to his own home in Nazareth and he takes a scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. He begins to read. He says, this has been fulfilled in your own hearing. The people think that what he's saying is very provocative. He's, he's totally off base with what he's saying. But listen to Jesus' words. He says this in verse 25. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months with a great famine. when a great famine came over all the land and listen to this. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now, you, you have to get yourself in that Jewish synagogue in Nazareth. Hearing that, people were ticked off. But he's not done. Look at else he says. Verse 27 And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, it shouldn't have upset them. Why? Because this is God's will. This is God's plan. This is God's grace. It's his mercy to those outside of the Jewish chosen community. But they hated that. So much so that they wanted to throw Jesus off of a cliff. But Jesus is saying this, look, The offer of salvation, it has always, always, always been intended for all of mankind and not just Israel. And if God's chosen people reject the offer, the offer will continue to go out to all the nations. And that's exactly how Luke's gospel closes. Look with me at Luke chapter 24 as we come to the close of the book and look at verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so we learn about the person, Luke. He's a doctor. He's a historian. He's a scholar. But more importantly, He's saved by this very gospel that he's communicating to us. And as a result, Luke gave his life, like so many others, to proclaiming this good news. And we learned about the purpose of Luke. It was given to us to have certainty that Christ did what he did and said what he said. Now let's look at just some of the features of the gospel of Luke that make it unique. Okay, The peculiarities of Luke. Now, just some quick facts, right? You click on the facts page. This is going to be helpful for us just situating what is in Luke. First of all, you need to know this. It is the longest gospel. 19,483 words in Greek, and I counted them. I didn't count them all. Just do a word search on on Logos. But it is the longest book in the New Testament, and Luke acts. Seen together constitutes about 28% of the entire New Testament, which means that Luke wrote more than Paul, even though Paul wrote 13 letters. It's the only gospel with a sequel. The other three gospels focused on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's where the story ends. But Luke takes you beyond that. Because what Luke does is he continues the story all throughout the church age, The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, the church is established, and we see the growth and the health of the church all throughout the book of Acts. There's also a great gospel focus. So for instance, when you read the Bible, there's a lot of words that you're familiar with, but I'm not sure that you're familiar with where those words actually occur. So for instance, the word sinner, that does not appear in Matthew I'm sorry, it does appear in Matthew, and it does appear in Mark, and it does appear in John, but it doesn't appear anywhere close to how many times it shows up in Luke. 18 times in Luke, we see the word sinner, sinner, sinner. But it's not just the word being used in a condemning sense or in a negative sense, because what Luke does with this word sinner is he helps us to see God's great concern for sinners, his love for sinners, his willingness to reach sinners. You'll remember these words in Luke 15. I tell you that in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one what? Sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who need no repentance. And so while he talks a lot about sinners, he also uses words like grace and salvation and forgiveness and Savior. And that's the word that is not used in Matthew or Mark. You say, really, it's not used in Matthew? Nope. But it's used in Luke. Mary says right at the beginning, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And the shepherds, they come and deliver the message and they say, for today in the city of David, there is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In addition to that, there's a particular entr- interest in the Holy Spirit. And so there's more references that to the Holy Spirit in Luke than in Matthew and Mark combined. We see right from the get-go that it's the Spirit that's empowering John the Baptist and Mary and Elizabeth and Zacharias, and Simeon, and especially Jesus. And with the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, he says he's going to send his spirit, and the spirit launches the church. Also, a distinctive, a unique feature of Luke is the parables. There are a number of key parables that we don't have in the other gospels. In fact, there are 18 parables, six miracles of Jesus that are found nowhere else. In addition to all those unique features, one of the most precious things about the Gospel of Luke is that he's addressing people who have been oppressed and mistreated. He addresses the social outcast, the poor, the physically impaired, the Samaritans, women, children, and all of those who are generally despised by the populace. And so we have these words from the Lord in Luke 14, 13. He writes this, or he says this, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you take that home right there and just meditate on that. And when we talk about discipleship and following Jesus and listening to his word and obeying his word, that's enough to bring both conviction and sorrow. But this is the the Jesus that Luke wants to present to us, one who loved people. And so we see this in Luke chapter 4. Flip back there, Luke 4. As we think about the poor, Jesus reads this in the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover sight to the blind to set those free who are oppressed. And so no wonder he mentions tax collectors in his gospel. And Samaritans. The preference isn't given to the Jews over the Samaritans. And only in Luke do we learn that Jesus actually rebuked James and John, because those two guys, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, they wanted to call down fire from heaven and zap the Samaritans. And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not my spirit. That's not the attitude. Luke is the only one to include that famous story of the good Samaritan. And you remember the, the 10 lepers that were healed? There's only one that comes back to thank Jesus and show his appreciation. And the Bible says with resounding clarity, and he was a Samaritan. So Luke has a great love for these people. Not only that, but the women in Luke's gospel. This is precious. Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, Martha, Mary, Bernice, Candace, Dorcas, Drusilla, Joanna, Lydia, Priscilla, Susanna. We would have no idea who these ladies were if Luke didn't record them for us. What's also very interesting is that when you pick up the gospel and read it, what Luke does is he'll tell a parable or a story about a man, but then he usually follows it up with a story or a parable about a woman. John Stott says this, St. Luke's gospel is the gospel of womanhood and tells more than the others of the gracious, courteous attitude of Jesus toward women and the place he allowed them to occupy even in his own ministry. It is he who tells with such delicate reserved the story of the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus Mary the mother of Jesus and Elizabeth the mother of the Baptist and the stories must have been directly or indirectly related to Luke so I believe that Luke actually sat down with these ladies and what we have here is their testimony He mentions the prophetess Anna the widow of Nain the woman who was a sinner the ministering women Martha and Mary The woman that Satan had bound for 18 years, the daughters of Jerusalem that wept. So in total, Luke mentions 10 women who are not mentioned anywhere else. You also have the mention of widows, and I can go on and on and on. But look, you say, wow, Luke must have really had a heart for these people. He's just recording Jesus's heart for these people. That's what he's doing. He's making sure the overlooked don't get overlooked anymore. That's the purpose. That's the person. And now, real quickly, the presentation. When you think about the four Gospels, each showing a different aspect of Christ, Matthew, Jesus is the sovereign Messiah, the King of the Jews. It's written for the Jews. So we see as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. Matthew focusing on the kingdom. Mark presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Written to the Romans, give me the action. Immediately what happens, going from one thing to the next. I'm excited the women are going to study through the gospel of Mark soon. John writes about Jesus as the Son of God. But Luke presents Jesus as the son of God. We sang about that. And the son of man. The Greeks had this ideal of the perfect man. And Luke says, look no further. Here he is, Jesus, the perfect man, the better Adam, the son of God. Now we ask the question, so what? And I love that question. Because we're not about just filling our head with knowledge or trying to pass a New Testament survey quiz or test. We need to ask ourselves, why all this introductory material? What's the relevance for our lives? Why even study the gospel in this way? And again, it goes back to this. Luke wants to give you sitting in the pew great confidence that all this is true. You are banking your life on this. You are giving yourself to this truth right here. And Luke wants you to say, you're not out of your mind. You're not crazy. This is reality. The God of the universe stepped out of heaven and came to earth. And he came to seek and save you and me. The perfect, sinless savior came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he wrote this. And listen, this precious gospel truth its not supposed to stop with you, but it's supposed to be given away freely to your family and your friends, to our children and our neighbors. That's the whole point. Be convinced of the gospel and then go communicate it to others. Listen, Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb. He provided the perfect Salvation, and don't ever forget, He came for you because you are an imperfect human being. That's Luke's gospel. It is for us. And so, when we say this is the record of the climax of history, it's exactly what we mean. Jesus came into the world and changed the world forever. This is the greatest story ever told. It's not a myth, it's not a fairy tale. This is reality. But there's implications. And this is where we end. What are you doing with this story? How are you responding to this story? Discipleship. Discipleship is what Luke is after. We look to Jesus, we learn from Jesus. We lean on Jesus to obey Jesus. And for those of us that want to do something significant or great and not waste our life, and we say, I want to change the world, well, just follow the formula that he gave. Take up your cross and follow me. Love one another. Serve one another. Sacrifice for one another. And if we faithfully do that, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, then we, here in 2022 and beyond, Lord willing, carry out the story that began here in Luke, went on to Acts, and will go on until Christ comes back. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Oh God, how sweet and rich and beautiful your word is. We know nothing about your character, and your attributes. We know nothing about your works and words apart from your word. And then even then, God, we don't understand it unless your spirit is working within us. And so we thank you for the power of the word, the presence of your spirit, the clarity in which you provide for us. Oh, Father, we want to know Jesus better. We want to love him more dearly more faithfully, more passionately. Oh, Father, we needed holiness, you provided it. Father, we see our world and it needs righteousness and you know how best to give it. Father, thank you for the grace and mercy and compassion and empathy and love that's demonstrated in Luke. Lord, I pray that over the course of the next several months, that like Luke, we would be convinced and captivated by Jesus Christ and we would be compelled to go and proclaim this message to a world that so desperately needs it. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.